Got a story to tell? We encourage our listeners to share their experiences of crisis and resilience. Spread the word and share your story using hashtag LocalGovLife on Twitter and Facebook. Who knows? You might have the chance to be featured on an upcoming episode. Here's the show. Welcome to this episode of ICMA's Local Gov Life. I'm your host, Erica White. This season, we're sharing stories of crisis and resilience. From natural disasters to acts of violence, local government leaders are on the front line, responsible for guiding the staff and community through the crisis and its aftermath. These powerful stories are told by the people who lived and led through them. The Canterbury earthquake sequence from 2010 to 2012 became known as the worst natural disaster in the history of New Zealand. It claimed lives and property, and the affected communities are still recovering seven years later. ICMA member Simon Markham is a local government manager for the Waimakaruri District Council. The district, which has a population of about 60,000, is part of the Greater Christchurch metropolitan area. In the wake of the earthquake and its aftermath, Simon found himself in an unexpected role, heading up recovery efforts for the district. He picks up his story from here. I am not an emergency management professional, but from 2010 to 2015, I found myself in the unexpected position of being the local recovery manager for Waimakariri District as we traversed the experience and the aftermath of New Zealand's greatest natural disaster, the Canterbury earthquake sequence of 2010 to 2012. At 4.35am on the 4th of September 2010, the totally unexpected happened. Epicentered about 30 kilometres to the southwest of the city, a 7.1 magnitude earthquake struck. Over the ensuing two years, a sequence of intense, shallow seismic activity played out. In all, some 14,000 recorded aftershocks. Most small, but over 50 were of magnitude 5.0 and above, inducing damage, and most tragically, on 22nd of February 2011, a 6.3 magnitude earthquake very close to central Christchurch with 50,000 workers there on the day resulted in 185 deaths and some 6,000 injuries. This was not the highest magnitude earthquake resulting in death or destruction in recorded history in New Zealand but it is certainly the most costly now estimated at New Zealand dollar 40 billion dollars of damage. Of the 180,000 homes in the Greater Christchurch area, around 90% sustained damage. 30,000 homes were severely damaged and 12,000 demolished. 8,000 were not to be rebuilt in a managed retreat program due to the extent of land damage. The central city core effectively destroyed with over 1,100 commercial buildings eventually demolished. And today, seven years later, rebuilding is occurring apace but it will take many years to regain the central place function that previously existed there. In my own district, Waimakariri, the severest damage arose from the first shake in 2010, most evident in the southeast of the district, where 80% of the population live in a series of small towns within 10 kilometres of the coast. Hundreds of homes on the day in a key town of 10,000 population were rendered uninhabitable, and eventually 1,000, a quarter of the housing stock, were subject to managed retreat and not rebuilt opening up 100 hectares of urban land for alternate uses. Alongside that severe damage to town centres, to community facilities and infrastructure, and to the rhythm of thousands of people's lives occurred, 
Unlike a flood, snowstorm or fire, our most common hazards, the unexpected and sustained nature of the earthquake sequence was profound and disturbing. As the ground continued to shake for months, hopes of rebuilding were delayed and delayed again. Lateral spreading and liquefaction of land were pronounced, whereby deep fissures opened up, land moved metres sideways, and silt and sand were ejected at the surface in a watery slurry, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of it. The result of a high water table on low-lying land at the coast, arising from river delta conditions built up over millennia, that European settlers in the 19th century chose to build a city and towns on. Just add shaking, and the results are disastrous. Civil defence and emergency management is highly decentralised to local government in New Zealand. Territorial councils are key to initial response in the emergency phase and have a coordination role in recovery. Regional and national interventions, only when the scale warrants it, occur and doesn't absolve local councils of ongoing responsibilities. The local recovery manager on behalf of the chief executive of the council embodies that coordination oversight role with few formal powers. Suffice to say, in September, seven years ago, I became with no prior experience the Johnny on the spot. Over the ensuing five years until passing the mantle on in 2015, quake experience and recovery management dominated my life and that of the council. Recovery management practice in New Zealand is unformed. Most disasters were and are localised of short duration, requiring intense response efforts with well-developed and practiced command and control structures. But large-scale, long-duration events requiring local, regional and national interventions and alignment were unpracticed. Locally, the Waimakari District Council ran six main recovery programs intensively over a five-year period, with the legacy of a couple of them melded into ordinary structures over the last couple of years and still ongoing. Those six programs were led by social recovery, community support and engagement as communities adjusted to a new normal as a result of the earthquakes. Secondly, the rebuild of infrastructure and damaged areas that were to be rebuilt. Thirdly, the rebuild of town centres and the initial support to businesses in the early recovery phase. Fourthly, many community facilities and reserves were damaged and required rebuilding or restoration or replacement. Because of managed retreat, we had many thousands of people on the move and we needed to accelerate residential development in new areas as our fifth program. And sixthly, the transition management for retreat areas and the determination of their future use. Many of you will have seen diagrams that depict a short high-intensity emergency and response phase, transitioning neatly into restoration, reconstruction, and then improvement. The reality of the last five to seven years is beyond the emergency period of, of weeks. Restoration, reconstruction, and improvement interrelate, overlap, are untidy, and require constant reflection as to where are we at, where are we headed, what is needed in the community. That reflective approach began early in the following quote from our chief executive in October 2010. Our success will not be measured by the kilometres of pipe and road that we replace, but by how the people come through this. This focus on community was elaborated into four key values for guiding recovery. We needed to express visible leadership, both at a council and at a staff level. We needed to be extremely open and honest in our communications and engagement. Our role in coordination and integration was vital, and we needed to work with the community's strengths. 
there is inevitably huge goodwill that arises immediately after a key disaster. We needed to recognize that, use that, and work with the community strengths. The experience in trying to live up to those values highlighted a number of recovery key success factors for us. The first is to remain centered at all times on the affected community. Although it seems a statement of the obvious, the reality is that in, a, in the throes of recovery management planning, it is very, very easy to get distracted into the detail of the program and lose sight of who we're trying to do this for. We could never have believed in our second main success factor how important focus on social and economic recovery was. Our tendency as local government is to focus on the physical environment and the built form. But people and how they respond to and recover from disaster, how business functions and continues are vital elements to recovery. We needed to maintain a sense of urgency, but at the same time balance speed with deliberation. We needed to focus on integration across different levels of government, local, regional and national. Depiction for people and ourselves of the vision of recovery and our strategy for it and the constant communication of it was vital. We needed to be really program specific. Local community engagement is absolutely vital and the way people react to and require information and assurance in an immediate aftermath of disaster is fundamentally different to what we might see and experience in peacetime. And we need to try and build resiliency into our recovery efforts and our structures and our processes and the on-the-ground results in all ways. Lastly, but overall, communication, again, became a vital element of our success. We could not have believed the demand for face-to-face -face as well as online, the need for repetition of our messages, the need to be open to constant questioning, to seek out answers, and to provide assurance to people that we were there for them and focused on their needs as far as we could within the things that we controlled and influenced. In summary, what we learned is that recovery is about businesses, communities, and people, and not just about rebuilding physical things. We need to have trust and belief in the community's ability to restore itself. We need to build confidence that recovery will happen and be part of sharing the success and the sorrow that disaster and its aftermath presents. Too often as local government professionals, we stand somewhat apart from our communities, needing or perceiving the need to be dispassionate and objective. But in these frenetic and unpredictable and vastly different times post-disaster, a quite different set of behaviours come to the fore in order for, uh, for communities to truly recover. Recovery is like a patchwork quilt. Every patch has to fit together with the next and it's not complete until the whole community is restored as far as practical with the best endeavours that we can make. I came to learn that a local recovery manager that doesn't have any command and control powers needed to behave differently and needed to highlight my ability to influence and persuade and suggest rather than command and control and tell. Striving for visible leadership in these terms was a different challenge to my usual day job as a manager, not that I sought to aspire in this role in a command and control sense in any event, but it is, has a fundamentally different lens to it. 
Recovery managers need to seek integration across jurisdictions and programs, promoting coordination within and among agencies, and be very visible in leading and promoting engagement with communities. It's highly likely in a major event that you and your family will be directly, if not personally, affected. And that was the case with myself. So I owe a huge debt to my family in that intense period of five years, where in many ways I was missing in action. In this role, you will need to manage your other roles as a parent, as a partner, other community commitments, and draw deep into your personal resilience in order to survive, frankly. That's our show for today. Share your thoughts about the episode by leaving a comment at icma.org slash podcasts. Subscribe now on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. Also, please share on social media and tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening to this episode of ICMA's Local Gov Life. <laughs>